0: Honor and our pleasure today to have Heather wright who grew up in this church, Emile's daughter. She actually studied in Italy on the preservation of ancient and priceless uh, um, tapestries, the, 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 the physical, the physicality of these things. Uh, she was in Jerusalem for a while, studied there, worked there. She's actually uh, the person, because of her training, who's actually allowed to touch the Dead Sea Scrolls. Most scholars never get that privilege, and she's actually put together two or three of these in the past, and Heather's been the driving force behind the scroll exhibit in Fort Worth. Now, we have some technological challenges, partially worked out, so Heather, am I taking it? You'll be in the back, but the pictures will be up here. Everybody wait for Heather. This is Heather in the back. She's gorgeous, but this morning you have to split your attention. Heather Reitstadt, the Dead Sea Scroll Exhibit in Fort Worth.
1: Is this working? Can you all hear me? Great. Luckily, this is a very visual presentation, so you won't need to crane around too much, I hope, Um, unless if it's to give me a dirty look at something that I might have said that you don't agree with. For the most part, I'm hoping to avoid that. Um, One thing that I would like to say generally is um, this exhibit is held at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, however, Um, It is not an exhibit with specifically a Southern Baptist nor a Christian slant. Um, One thing that we try to do in these exhibits that I've worked on in the past, we try and partner with an international community so that we're creating a platform for dialogue between disparate groups. So anybody from the Palestinians and Jordanians to the Israelis. In fact, our collaborator in this exhibit has been Hebrew University, as they've worked with us numerous times on previous exhibits, notably the one in Houston from a couple of years ago. I don't know if any of you actually had the opportunity to go down there with us for that exhibit, but I worked on that with the Dead Sea Scrolls Foundation. Uh, The foundation has been integral to really my training in this field. Before uh, getting into scrolls exhibits, I was working purely with antiquities. Um, As Walt mentioned, I was doing uh, a lot of textiles uh, for my entry-level material doing conservation, but then I broadened it a bit because I got a bit tired of it. Quite, quite honestly. I wanted to work with um, more antiquated materials, representative of human history. So I ended up going into Jerusalem. And I ended up working at the Israel Museum there. And that's how I got connected with the foundation. And the rest is history. But I wanted to give you a little bit of background, just to give you some understanding of how this all came into being because there's a lot of people that ask me after these presentations, how on earth did you get into this? And I'd I'd rather get it out of the way in um, the beginning of the presentation so we can save questions and answers for things that are more pertinent to the presentation. So in 2002, I was at the Art Institute of Chicago, where I was actually more interested in um, Anatolian studies, particularly ikat and different types of textiles that were coming out of the interior of Anatolia, which is now modern-day Turkey. Um, Interestingly, I later got involved in some of the archaeological research going on in the interior, uh, particularly at um, Çatalhöyük. I don't know if any of you have been paying attention to news as of late, but there's quite a few uh, Neolithic sites that are being unearthed uh, in Turkey in the interior, which are incredible. They're finding some fabulous uh, stone reliefs and just really amazing stuff, far more advanced than we could have ever hoped for for sites that are 12,000 years old. So anyways, I studied that, then went on to do uh, my conservation training in Italy, as Walt had mentioned. Um, as I mentioned as uh, following that, I got a little kind of worn out with textiles, and I decided that I wanted to work with antiquities in the Middle East. So I went to Israel, and that's where I got started with artifacts. After which, I decided I needed to probably um, be official and get some kind of degree pertaining to archaeology if I was going to work with these objects. And that's actually where I met my mentor after having done my um, degree work uh, at Cambridge. I ended up meeting up with some folks at the Israel Museum, did my internship there, came back, started working for the Tanny Museum in Fort Worth, which is an educational resource of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So there you have the tree essentially, of how this all happens. Because people kind of scratch their heads, they say, how does a girl from Dallas, Texas end up in Jerusalem and then back? (laughs) Why on earth would you come back? But that's a different story for another time. So, I am the resident curator, as well as exhibition coordinator, for this exhibit in Fort Worth. Um, The image that you see in front of you is actually Isaiah B. I don't know if you all have talked about the different Isaiahs that have come out of Qumran. Isaiah A, of course, is the really fabulous, long, complete, fully intact scroll of Isaiah, the only one known in existence. Um, And it's over 20 feet long. This piece is not that long. This is a fragment of Isaiah B, which is columns um, four through seven, which is one of the pieces that we'll be exhibiting. Significantly smaller, but impressive all the same. So um, just to give you an overview, oh no, some of my animations aren't working. Such is life. (laughs) Um, Just to give you an overview of the exhibit, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the purpose structure and also the content, so that if some of you are not able to make it out to the exhibit, at least you'll know um, what it is that it'll have. So um, first and foremost, as an educational institution, uh, our purpose and mission statement is to educate the public. Um, we want a further scholarship. We have research associates from across the world that have come to work with us in um, not only trying to publish these scrolls that Southwestern uh, came into ownership of, but we also want to try and understand them uh, more deeply on all levels, not just epigraphically and historically. But we also want to understand the, forensics, uh, the forensic evidence that they can yield. Sometimes you can distinguish one scribe from the next just looking at his scribal ductus, or in layman's terms, uh, handwriting. Um, And I'll get into that later on. Uh, We also want to foster international dialogue, which I was mentioning before. We have partnered with the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. But this isn't just a Jewish exhibit. It's also uh, an exhibit for all who would come to want to know scripture. Um, We've partnered with Palestinians, uh, the Kingdom of Jordan, just about everybody that you can imagine that has fun stuff to contribute. Um, So we also want to show off some of Southwestern's acquisitions. At present, they own eight fragments. It started out with two. Now it's eight. Um, Also, we want to promote the Southwestern Archaeology Program. So I've been going out to Israel since I came back in 2007 from living in Jerusalem. um, I I came back to Texas thinking, I've got to get back. And one of the gems of working for this institution is they said, well, if you come and work with our collections, you know, spend some time on the ground working with our students, we'll send you back all expense paid once a summer and or once a year, every summer, and you can work in the field at Tel Gezer, which is an Iron Age site. Actually, it's a Solomonic city and a major fortification between the coastal plain where the Philistines resided. Uh, and a barrier essentially, Um, one of the last fortifications between Philistia and uh, what we know to be Jerusalem. So fun site to dig at, little plug there for our archaeology program. Um, So Southwestern is the host, the Dead Sea Scrolls Foundation um, is one of the collaborators in making this whole thing gel, Um, and then West Semitic Research. They're a really kind of great group out of uh, University of Southern California. They're responsible for digitizing all of the Dead Sea Scrolls, essentially. They've done just about everything apart from those that belong to the Israel Antiquity Authority, because they're very proprietary of their fragments, as they should be. Um, But all other Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've ever Googled Dead Sea Scrolls, I can almost guarantee 90% of the images that you're looking at are West Semitic research. Um, we've also partnered with Hebrew University, as I mentioned before, over, um, let's see, it's 168 artifacts that we're exhibiting, um, all ranging from the time of Alexander the Great of Macedon moving into uh, later periods of Herod Agrippus. So lots of, lots of material to cover, but all more or less focusing on Second Temple. And I'm sure you guys have gone over that a little bit in this class, if not a lot. Um, We've also uh, been working with the Kando family of Bethlehem. So, does anybody know the story of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Bedouins that found it, and have you guys talked at all about how it is that they came to this Bedouin dealer, Iskander? Okay, the long name for Kando. Okay, which it's which it's rooted from. He was a, for lack of a better term, antiquities dealer. Okay, that these. these Bedouin sheep herders approached. Um, The family was in Bethlehem, still there to this day. They do have a shop, however, in East Jerusalem, which is part of the West Bank, as you know it today. Um, They have had ownership of more or less the best pieces, okay, for several generations now, well, since 1948. Um, And he's responsible for lending as well as selling some of the fragments. I won't get into the politics of that, but it's important to know who these people are because they have some of the most incredible unpublished, never never before seen scrolls in any private ownership. Um, One of the pieces that you'll get to see in the exhibition actually is massive. It's about mm, 10 by 11. It's a scroll from the book of Genesis, and it's never been seen outside of his bank vault. So this is huge. And just as an additional wow factor, it's valued at $43 million. Mm -hmm. Um, We've also partnered with the David Jesselson family of Zurich, Switzerland. This is a fabulous man. He actually um, did purchase the stone, the Dead Sea Stone, that was featured in uh, the Houston exhibit. If any of you guys went to that one, you will have seen it already. However, he has also lent us a number of other artifacts, including an original inkwell from Qumran that you'll get to see, as well as some early print Bibles. So in this exhibit, you'll notice the subtitle is Ancient Artifacts, um, Timeless Treasures. We're looking at 2,000 years of biblical scripture. So we're not just looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes, that's you know the, the major showcase, but we also want to look at the transmission of biblical text, because what the Dead Sea Scrolls do for us, and I'm sure that Walt has driven this home on many a lesson, um, they demonstrate the faithful transmission of the biblical text. Because prior to finding the Dead Sea Scrolls, all we had to go on was the Masoretic Masoretic Text, which postdates the Dead Sea Scrolls by nearly a 1,000 years, if not more. Um, When you look at Paleo Leviticus, my goodness, that one goes back to 250 BC. So you can imagine how wonderful it was for the first scholars that got to look at these and see the continuity and the lack of, I guess, variance from the original biblical text. Yes, there are some things that are slightly different, but for the most part, what they do demonstrate is the the faithful transmission. So that's pretty exciting that the Bible that we have today is pretty dang close to what people were working with 2,000 years ago. So we've got um, the Jesselson stone, we've got all of his early print Bibles. We also have, I don't know if you guys are at all familiar with Hobby Lobby. I don't know if we have any over in Dallas yet. We've got some in Fort Worth, a couple. Pretty neat place for crafting. The Green family own that company and they are um, very excited about the the Dead Sea Scrolls. They've gone about collecting numerous fragments as well as New Testament papyri as well as early print Bibles. So they're antiquarians of sorts, and they're also um, very strong Christians. And they've worked with us as well to secure a loan for this exhibit of some six fragments. So we're happy to have their involvement. So as far as the content, we've got 2,000 years of biblical text, as I said, from the Dead Sea Scrolls all the way up to the St. John's Bible. I didn't mention that particular lender. If anybody has not heard of them, I'll, I'll present a piece of theirs at the end of the presentation. It's pretty neat stuff. Um, we'll also have scenes from the original Qumran excavations. So have you ever heard, anybody in the room, of the Ecole Biblique? No. Roland de was a French priest um, and monk, and he started, well, he didn't start the school, but he was one of the major individuals that put it on the map, French School of Jerusalem, 1949 they hear about this discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and they say, we want in. So they went to Qumran and they started doing a systematic survey of the caves and also said, you know what, there's there's a pretty good chance given the proximity of these caves to this site over here where we've got a few walls exposed and a couple of cisterns pretty close to the surface. why Why don't we do a systematic excavation of that site as well? Maybe it's related. So the Kol was responsible for several years of excavation at Qumran. So it's yielded incredible artifacts, everything from um, inkwells uh, to pottery, and some of the benches that they believe might have had some purpose, perhaps, in uh, if not you know using the scrolls for, for copying, then perhaps for unrolling them and reading them. Um, we're not going to have any of those artifacts in the exhibit, but you can look them up on the Israel Museum's website if you're ever interested. So, great people to work with. They're still in existence, and they have an, emi- an enormous archive of photographs from the original excavation, which you'll get to see in the exhibit. Um, we've also got uh, so, when you go through the exhibit, when you get to the scroll room, you'll see big poster size labels, you're not going to literally have to hover on top of the scroll cases to see everything as in an Israel Antiquity Authority exhibit, like the one that was recently in New York and the one that's in Philadelphia now. Those are all Israel Antiquity Authority exhibits. What they do is they present to you essentially 4,000 years <laughs> as opposed to 2,000 years of material and they inundate you with this this information to the point that it's it's oversaturation. And then you get to the scroll room, and you can't see anything because you can't see any of the photographs, and you can't read it because they don't really f- provide translations. So, what we try and do as, an, as a Dead Sea Scrolls Foundation exhibit is provide more of an educational platform. We're not going to inundate you with information, we're going to provide select pieces that really focus on the material and then try and give you as best a summary as possible. So we're going to have lots of didactic texts that explain what you're looking at so you don't have to wander and look it up later. Um, We've also got some amazing objects, as I mentioned, from Hebrew University. Really fabulous stuff, you guys. A lot of um, coins and pottery, but we've also got a lot of cosmetic items, Roman glass, and all different colors and shapes. And we've got some incredible archaeological metals um, from Masada, from Jerusalem, from Herodium just about everywhere um, of importance where this particular story starts to unfold in the Holy Land. Um, We also have some interactive Dead Sea Scrolls stations for enhanced viewing. What I mean by that is the West Research Project, having partnered with us on this project, they have done digital scans of all of the Dead Sea Scrolls belonging to Southwestern. So when you go into the room, they're fiber optically lit. It's a little hard to see them up close. So you have the opportunity to, after going through the scroll room, going into a assist room off to the side, and viewing these things in infrared light so that you can literally read them like newspaper. So that's pretty exciting. Um, and then, of course, we have never before seen scrolls. I really hope this isn't going to be happening throughout the duration of the presentation because it's such a visual one. Can we tinker around with it at all? Is there anything that we can do to try and work this out while I'm talking? Um, so when you go into the exhibit, we really try and set the tone with why you're here, what you're going to be looking at. Though you can't go to the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem in this very moment, we can try and paint for you as close a picture as possible of what that area looks like, where it is that this drama unfolds, why it is that you have this sectarian group isolating themselves in this godforsaken area of the Dead Sea and how it is that they lived there, how it is that their community was able to thrive or at least get by. Um, So we we provide a lot of photographs, beautiful uh, mural-sized images of the Dead Sea and its surrounding environs. Um, Moving on, we've got some Hebrew University materials, all the way from the Hellenistic period going into um, the later Roman periods. I'm really hoping this isn't going to be an issue throughout the duration of the presentation. we talk a little bit about some of the some of the reasons why it is that you have these sectarian groups that break away from the temple. How it is that the Hellenistic influence has really defiled it uh, and made it, for lack of a better term, unkosher. Um, so you have you, you have your three major groups, right? You've got your Essenes, okay? You've got your Pharisees and you've got your Sadducees. A lot of people. Say that Qumran could have been the location of the Essenes. We don't know that for a fact, so we don't focus on that in the course of the exhibit. We just talk about some of these sectarian groups and how it is that you know many of them demonstrated almost early monastic practices, uh, or at least those people that you know we believe to have lived at Qumran. You have a lot of different mikvahs, so there was a strong presence of um, ritual purity within their ideology. In fact, when you look at some of the sectarian scrolls, like the rule of the community and the manual of discipline, you really get a feel for that. I mean, it's a strict regiment. It's almost military. Wash your hands at this hour. Dress in white on this day. Don't do this. Don't do that. Very, very closely regimented. Um, so we look at those groups. And we look at some object. Oh, great, yeah. I was wondering how long I was going to have to do this. Dancing over here. Um, it would have been a very short dance. Um, so. Great, now I get to talk about the fun, beautiful stuff that I get to work with. So you guys, I'm not a paleographer. I'm not an epigrapher. I don't even read Hebrew all that great, just saying. I like to work with the objects. That's my favorite thing. I'm a conservator at heart, so my primary role in this exhibit is to take care of objects such as this one. Um, when they came into the loading dock right from Jerusalem, we had to let them sit for 24 hours to fully climatize lifting this thing out of the crate for the first time. It's huge. It's three feet high. This is, this is one of the most beautiful info I've ever seen. And in antiquity, it was used for shipping wine. So you get to see artifacts like this uh, throughout the exhibit. that are just really impressive. Some of these pieces are incredible as well. This is core-made glass. It's not blown. It's actually layered. So you have a core, and you fill it. It's almost like, When I was little and I had to go to summer camp and I made my own candle, I had to dig a hole in the ground and then fill it up with the wax. And while the wax was still cool, I would put my wick in. This is not a a dissimilar process. So the reason why you see all these striations and beautiful designs is because those are all hand layered. Gorgeous stuff. Um, No, (laughs) (laughs) I'm so disappointed. I can't believe this is happening. What was it that we did last time to make it work?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: well, okay. How many of you have actually been to Israel? Show of hands. Wonderful. Okay, so none of this is really new material. <laughs> eh.
0: <laughs>
1: well. Well, this one is actually 2nd century. Yeah, BC. I'm sorry. Everything from the beginning of the exhibit moving forward is BC, before Christ. You may see BCE, that means before common era. So depending on your audience, um, for instance, in this particular exhibit, since it is a theological seminary, it, it does have a very Christian undertone, given who the host is. So we use BC AD. In all other exhibitions, though, we've been working with non for profits uh, for the most part, museums. They don't want to have such a heavy Christian focus. So they use that terminology, BCE, before common era, and then CE, common era. So there's no direct relationship with our dating system as Christians. It's just a way of being all-inclusive and making everybody feel okay with life. you you, know, you have to be a constant dimple, a diplomat particularly when you have such a politicized exhibit people have been talking about the dead sea scrolls ever since they first started being exhibited in the 1990s primarily because well many of them view that the israel antiquity scrolls as spoils of war okay yeah. they were housed at the rockefeller museum which was the palestinian archaeological museum okay until 1967 when the West Bank was brought into the yoke of Israel. Now, I love Israel, I love Israelis. I'm not gonna go down that road, I'm not gonna have these conversations, but one thing that we do try and do as the Dead Sea Scrolls Foundation is partner with institutions which do not have any materials which could potentially be viewed as spoils of war. So the cool thing about working with Hebrew University is they actually have in their possession several really magnificent Dead Sea Scrolls one of which is Isaiah B, which I was showing you earlier. How is it that they came into ownership? Well, Eliezer Sukenik was one of the first scholars to actually handle, view immediately after discovery any of these scrolls. The, The Bedouin actually came to Iskander Kanda, right? The dealer. The dealer then goes into the West Bank, into the, I guess, the partitioned, area, okay, under British mandate, at this point, we're still looking in 1948, okay, Iskander Kando goes to try and talk to this man, somehow they've been communicating, I'm not entirely sure, they manage to meet, there's a partition of a barbed wire fence between them, Kando hands the Great Isaiah Scroll rolled up between some links in the fence and says, take a look at this for me and let me know if it's of any value. Eliezer Sukinek takes it back to his laboratory at Hebrew University and says what else have you got? (laughs) (laughs) I'll buy it right now. Well he couldn't come up with the money, by then Kandu had already figured I'm on to something here. I'm going to sit this out and wait until the world is open to me and I'm not under British mandate. And in this, you know, Palestinian cell, okay, of, of a country, Um, And, you know, I'll see once the market is open what I can get for this stuff because I think that there's probably some significant interest if he's so quick to jump. Um, So they waited it out for a little while, but he was able to secure, namely, Isaiah A, as well as the Thanksgiving scroll, or I'm sorry, not Isaiah A, Isaiah B, as well as the Thanksgiving scroll and several other pieces. So we like to work with Hebrew University on these exhibits because these are not contested pieces. They were never housed at the Rockefeller. They don't belong to the Israel Antiquity Authority. They belong to Hebrew University, and they've belonged to Hebrew University since 1948. So, if anybody knows their history, that's before Israel even existed. So, we're good. We're clean. We're kosher. (laughs) That's not to say that the Israel Antiquity Authority's pieces aren't fabulous, and that they don't put together really wonderful exhibits. We just prefer not to have protesters outside of our museums. I don't know if anybody ever heard of the uh, was it the ROM exhibit? The Royal Ontario Museum. A couple years ago, the Palestinian community came out and protested. It made international news. That was because they had spoils of war, or what the Palestinians viewed as spoils of war. So that's one of the that's one of the agendas of the Israel Found the Dead Sea Scrolls Foundation is trying to restore some of these pieces, not all, but some of these pieces to the Jordanians, to the Palestinian people. So it looks like we're back up. Well, again, it's just highlights, and we're probably running d- low on time anyway, so I'll try and fly through these as I can. So, yeah,
0: exactly. Up next week to you. You gotta pick yes.
1: Time on it. Yeah. So, just real quickly, here's some really great coins uh, the big man himself, Alexander the Great. Um, we've also got some of the early Maccabee coins. Um, other things that I'm not gonna show you. Um, so one of the uh, sections of this exhibit, one of the big sections of this exhibit focuses on the differences and similarities between okay the, the fortified city of Masada and then Qumran. So geographically speaking they share a lot of similarities. They're in the exact same area along the Dead Sea okay, both, both on the western shore. Mind you one is a little bit further south. Um, however Environmentally, these people are working with the same sorts of elements, okay? However, when you get into the site itself, no! (laughs) This is so discouraging. The pictures say a thousand words. Essentially, I'm sure many of you have been to Masada on some of your trips. You know, they have incredible mosaics, all of those gorgeous floors, the painted plaster on the walls. Yeah, you're not going to see that at Qumran. It's not the same community. It's not the same kind of people. It doesn't have the same sort of purpose. So we try and juxtapose two very different sites sharing very similar environments, OK? And why it is that, that the community of Qumran was where it was. So namely, you're pretty dang close to the Temple of Jerusalem in the event that it's OK to come back. You also have perennial streams that come down from the mountainous area just along the shores of the Dead Sea that can feed into any number of different water systems that you want to build there on the side, or you also have cisterns for catching rainwater. They're good. But it's not anywhere near as extravagant as what you're going to see at Masada. So we try and juxtapose that sense of asceticism with the palatial system of Herodium and Masada. And looking at how these two very different types of peoples and communities are coexisting or not, and the revolts and things that happen later on, right? Bar Kokhba, all of the last siege at Masada. So we look at all the drama that unfolds in this very tight-nitched area. So when we look at Qumran specifically, we're looking at all of those different uh, points that I was talking about earlier, as well as some of the uh, materials that came out. So we do have some, some artifacts uh, from the community at Qumran, from those excavations. We've got ink wells. We've got uh, a stylus, cool stuff. We've got those photographs that I was telling you about from the Col Biblique. The gentleman on the right, that's Roland DeVoe He's the French priest that I was telling you about. He's a fun guy. We've got original recordings of him as well that are part of the exhibit. Um, we then look at the actual sorting process. Great, you found all of these wonderful pieces, now what? So, we go through explanation of what that monumental process was like, how it is that they had to shortlist all of these different groups. So, you've got hundreds of thousands of pieces, right? We, we now know that it's much fewer manuscripts. But all of these pieces had to be grouped according to manuscripts. Well, first they separated according to material, right? Because you've got parchment and then you've got papyrus. Well, then they need to look at the coloration, the state of preservation. Well, this one's a little bit darker. Maybe it goes with this piece of parchment over here. Well, then once they start grouping those, then they start looking for materials that they can say beyond a shadow of a doubt, this isn't biblical. So unfortunately, they know the biblical stuff, but only a fraction of the materials that are preserved are biblical. Most of the scrolls that they find are either non-biblical or sectarian. So part of the education process in this exhibit is we demonstrate what big Bubba pieces look like. Because when you get down to the scroll room, you're really just going to be seeing fragments. So we have really fabulous facsimiles, which are exact copies of original pieces. So you can see what a Dead Sea Scroll looks like in its entirety. We also have a facsimile of the, De- um, of the Great Isaiah Scroll, the same one that you'll see in the shrine of the book. So everybody says, oh, well you, you, all you guys, the facsimile. Well, it's no better than what you're going to see in Israel. <laughs> I mean, you know, they don't pull that out unless if it's a presidential visit. And even then, they're only going to show you a piece. So as far as the scrolls are concerned, we've got eight from Southwestern, six from the Green family, six from the Kando family of Bethlehem, two from Hebrew University, and then we also have the Dead Sea Stone. So it's a big exhibit. Oh wait, so this piece I told you before is Isaiah B. We have two fragments of Isaiah B that we're going to be showing. One is columns four through seven, which you see here. And then at three months, we're going to switch it out. It needs to rest, needs to be away from lights, needs to be away from temperature fluctuations, away from people. Uh, That goes home, back to Israel. The couriers come back from the Antiquity Authority, and they install the next piece, which is columns two through three. So you're gonna get to see the entire piece, but only if you come twice. (laughs) So this is the Dead Sea Stone, and if nobody's seen it, okay, the only place where you would have seen it was Houston, or if you made it up to the Milwaukee exhibit that I also worked on. But I just wanna talk about it really quickly. It's a cool piece. So it's an apocalyptic prophecy, right? Um, They've attributed this piece to, um, or at least the prophecy, to the angel Gabriel, 87 lines of biblical text. And they've been able, through paleographic uh, comparative research, to date it to the same period as the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's contemporaneous. And they've looked at the petrographic analysis of the actual mineral imprints, and it's from the Dead Sea. Now, they don't have an exact provenance because it was purchased. However, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's absolutely from the Dead Sea. So that's pretty exciting. Oh, and um, one of the other cool pieces about this is it's possible that our concept of the the resurrection, um, it's not a Christian, idea that later developed with the early church. It could have been a a, a very Jewish idea that was already pre-existing within their ideology. So that's kind of cool. So here's some of the scrolls. Uh, We've got this piece, which is Exodus. Again, you guys, these aren't mega pieces. But they're still important, because it's possible that they go with other pieces, and then we could reconstruct lots of big manuscripts. Um, We've also got Leviticus. I'm just going to show you a few of these. Um, The cool thing about this exhibit is we have an example of Leviticus, and right next to it, we can show a fragment of Paleo-Leviticus, so that you can see the same type of book. They're both copies from the book of Leviticus, but two very different scripts. Okay, so most of the the fragments that you'll see published are in the Hebrew square type of paleography, okay? Whereas this piece in particular is Paleo-Hebrew, and when you look at it, when you come to the exhibit and look at the big blown up posters, you can see why it's identified as a different type of script. It looks very different. So that's kind of fun. Um, we also have, I know that you guys foreshadowing a little bit to the spring. I understand that you guys are going to be uh, looking at the book of Daniel. So we're really excited about our piece of Daniel because it's one of only two from the book of, Isaiah, er, from the book of Daniel on papyrus. So. We're not entirely sure what that means from a forensic archaeology standpoint. Does it mean that it was imported from elsewhere? Does it mean that the other piece of Daniel and papyrus is the same scribe, and that was his material of choice? Lots of different questions there, but we're excited to have at least one of those pieces. This is what you can do with West Semitic research's uh, technology. They've been able to photograph these for us, and they can put it in infrared so that we can read it just like a newspaper. It's pretty cool, right? So, you'll get to do that as well at the exhibit. You can go and play with the kiosk. This is Bruce Zuckerman. He's the director of the West Femitic Research Project and a great friend. He's worked with um, a lot of the Tandy's collections. We digitized recently all of our cuneiform tablets. There's over 200 of those, and he worked with me directly on that project. He's very knowledgeable, and he's very patient. This is him and his team, uh, Kenneth Zuckerman on the right and then Marilyn Lundberg on the left. Uh, They're working with our students there. We're actually digitizing the Dead Sea Scrolls as a group. So here's what you do. You take a dome, on the upper right you can see it, and it has different flash points with a stationary camera on top. I think on this one we've got 36 flashes. So a computer is, is connected to this dome. Right, you put the, f- the object of interest inside the dome, close it. And then you push one button on your computer, it's already pre-programmed, to take all of these different flashpoints. It takes a total of 36 photographs, compresses them all on a program, that you can then, in essence, interact with the object, which has then been photographed. And I can show you what that looks like, although I don't know. I'm probably not going to be able to go directly to the website. Let's give it a go. Now, no, <gasps> no.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, I didn't think so, but that's okay. Uh-oh, how do I go back to my presentation? Essentially, what you're looking at here is multiple different photographs of the exact same object, but you can see that the focus on the flash is always from different points. So just try and imagine in your mind that happening 36 times, and then overlapping all of those photographs on top of one another. And then the image on the right, see how it looks kind of metallic and shiny? You can create these PTMs, they're polytextural maps. And what you're doing is, you're sending all of that flash directly back to you. And you can choose how you want to interact with that photograph as if you're looking at it in real time in front of you, shining a light with your mouse pad. You can move your finger around. You can move your mouse around and shine it just like a flashlight. It's pretty phenomenal information to have. Why is that important to Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, we can actually look at the height of the ink on the parchment as it's put down when a scribe is putting down a letter. Why is that important? Well, you can look at variance on a micro level from one aleph to the next aleph, or one bet to the next bet and so on and so forth, and literally make postulations about one copy of one book being either similar or different to the handwriting that you see on another copy. So going further with that, you can then start to look at some of the pieces from Qumran and say, wow, that's a Daniel guy. I've I've seen his work. I love his work. We can start trying to identify these guys. So that's pretty exciting research that's happening, and it's all due to West Semitic research's work. Oh, and you can also look at all of the follicles uh, on the parchment itself and try and, make, uh, try and try and derive information about what kinds of animals were used because it wasn't just sheep and goats. We've actually done DNA research on some of these pieces and it's coming back as antelope and deer and everything imaginable. So you can look at the, the placement and the patterns of the follicles and get a better idea too of what kind of animal species they're using for this parchment. And this is one of the kiosks that you'll see in the exhibit. It's fun stuff. Can't emphasize the importance of that enough to you. Um, I don't know if we have enough time to go through some of the transmission text. It's very minimal. Maybe I'll fly through this. We have more uh, New Testament papyri than any other exhibit to date. We've got eight full sides of codices. So this one is from Matthew. this one is from Acts. This one is Romans from the Letters of Paul. This is P46. This is possibly the most elegant and beautiful New Testament papyrus that you will ever see. And we've got four full sides that you're going to get to see in the exhibit. These are double-sided pieces. We have four manuscripts, but we've got eight sides that we can exhibit, which is more than any other exhibit. So feather in my cap, I'm excited about that. This is Hebrews, also P46. This, we're starting to get into the transmission text after we move past the scroll room, past New Testament papyri, We look at some of Southwestern's collections that I was able to uh, rival through in Robert's library, go into their archives and find some really incredible stuff. This is a palimpsest, a really rare one at that. Does anybody know what a palimpsest is? Essentially, it's a manuscript that utilizes two different types of language, one superimposed on top of another. Um, Sometimes it's because you just didn't have any other material around so you scratch out or try and bleach out or sand off the pre-existing language or script from that substrate so that you can write on top of it. Here though what's underneath, you have the Coptic on top which is nonsensical magical incantations. Those cops, crazy. But what you see underneath is a really beautiful, well-preserved example of the book of Genesis. This is an original Torah scroll. Now, what it was doing in Fayum, Egypt, where it was sourced and found, no idea. The cops probably found it at another synagogue and thought, well, Torah scrolls are of no import to us. Let's practice our handwriting or let's put down this magical incantation. But it's interesting because you get to look at how these manuscripts were viewed at different points in, in their utilization and, and and how the biblical script has changed or remained the same. This shows you the transmission of the text, but also the change in the actual type of script. So this is now a different type of Hebrew that we're looking at, the actual type of script itself. It's no longer square. You're starting to get into punctuation marks to emphasize a stressing of a vowel. And you didn't have that in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's another reason why we put this piece up. It's exciting. And from a um, more recent historical standpoint, the same scholars that translated the Dead Sea Scrolls like William Foxwell Albright, uh, Jim Trevor, Brownlee, all those guys looked at this piece before they sent it back to us in the 1950s. So that's pretty exciting. And then we also have lectionaries. Does anybody anybody know what a lectionary is? Ish. It's kind of like a Bible study. It's sort of like a combination of the Old Testament with the New. So this is the first time that you start to see that sort of thing. It's pretty exciting. And also, you start to see more dramatic, Uh, visual elements on the page, you're no longer just copying for the sake of copying. It's not just about the transmission of the biblical text. Now you're actually trying to revere it in a a more artistic way. And when you start to look at even later pieces like the Latin Vulgate, okay, you see on a micro level this this piece, I want to say, is probably a four by six page. Those illuminations are microscopic. (laughs) They're absolutely gorgeous. These historiated initials and all the little doodles on the side are completely unnecessary for the transmission of the text. It's a different way of revering it. It's a different way of appreciating it. And when you get into other pieces, like this uh, missile leaf, you actually see rubrication. So those are select pieces in red which are meant for the oration of the congregation. So now we're not just copying text. Now we're not just putting forth these lesson plans for monastic communities. This is for a congregation. We're we're now opening up the access of the biblical text to the masses. And you can see this literally in the way it's being put down on the page. When you start to get into early print Bibles, okay, again, People are utilizing images. They're using colors. They're using illuminations to try and tell this story. This is an example from the Nuremberg Bible. Um, This one is from 1450, I want to say. It's absolutely gorgeous. They even have um, almost like a Giotto style mannerism of putting down both past, present, and future of biblical stories in these images. So, we're not just using words anymore, and it's not just scribally based. They're bringing in artisans to try and create these master works so that, again, the Bible isn't just for transcribing and transcribing and transcribing. It's for appreciation, it's for worship. And then, to really book in this entire thing, these, this 2,000 years of biblical text, we have three pieces from the St. John's Bible. If nobody's heard about it, it's the first fully handmade Bible, from the stretching of the parchment and the sanding of it, to the ruling of the lines and the illuminations, everything done by hand since the the invention of the printing press. So first time this has been done in 500 years. And it was almost 15 years in the making. They started in 1998. Well, they started discussions in 1995. And they just finished Revelations. It's a seven volume set. They just finished Revelations last year. So I can't ooh and ah over it enough. That's it for me. I know that I've gone over a few minutes and I apologize, but I highly encourage everybody to come out. So thank you very much.